if you derive your opinions on, on policy from principles, you first have to define your principles. I think within our country, we had a group of men who, some coming from a Christian background, some coming from a deist background, came to this idea that we don't belong to the state. We belong to our creator. And because that we belong to our creator, we don't belong to one another. We own our body, we own our property, and we own our destiny. Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so... We have a cowboy as president of the United States, and I thought I'd talk about tariffs this episode, since that's such a hot-button topic right now. Trump is putting tariffs on steel and aluminum for China, and it's causing a big hubbub in D.C. and elsewhere. So I thought we could take the opportunity to talk about tariffs from a more economic and uh, theoretical perspective to really analyze whether it makes sense to be doing tariffs the benefits or drawbacks to them, more the theory behind it so that you can get away from the political fluff and rhetoric. So I brought Eric Benzenhofer onto the show this time, and I'm going to juxtapose his opinions with Tom Dickens, who I talked to last night. So we'll see how that comes out. But uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Give us a little background on yourself in terms of where you're coming from on economics and everything. Yeah. So I got into the libertarian world from the Ron Paul days. I was watching him right next to all of the other political candidates, and I was very confused in why... In 2008. In 2008, yeah, his first go-around. I was just real confused why this seemingly reasonable man was seen as an outcast and a fool for running. And I was seen as a fool for thinking that an outcast might win. That got me further down the road trying to you know gobble up as much of that stuff as I can and I would divide the libertarian world into two main categories those who say libertarianism and its principles are the best way to organize society for the greatest good and the other camp saying that libertarianism is derived from the most moral and the most right principles and therefore that should be the way we organize society because it's right and nothing else really matters some generalizations that I've come to is that it seems like people who come to libertarian schools of thought tend to be contrarians first off. And then I disagree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and also critical thinkers, somewhat more intangible and conceptual in their thinking than the average person. Tangible and conceptual. This would be a good time to plug my podcast. Yeah, let's hear it. So I do, I'm half of uh, the Idea Tank podcast where we conceptualize ideas that we're never going to do. And we, <laughs> we have a lot of fun. We're uh, 28 episodes in, ideatankpodcast.com. So you're only emphasizing my point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you got into the libertarian school of thought in the Ron Paul days. And was that completely new information to you at that point in time? Yeah, politics in general 
was new information. People would ask me, am I Democrat or Republican? And I would say, like, I'm a kid. And it was back in high school. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, this stuff doesn't affect me. My first exposure to politics was watching George W. Bush's uh, State of the Union. I was like, what is this? Someone said, he's going to talk about what's going on in the country. And I was blown away because when I finished watching, I said, he didn't say anything. All he said was, we're going to make changes. And then people clap. All these generalities were out there. I was really interested in what this guy thought, what was going on, what were the options, all these things. And uh, the madness of it all never stopped until I saw Ron Paul speaking clearly. Truth to power. Yes. All right, so let's talk about the situation briefly, and then we can get into the theory behind tariffs. So what's been going on is Trump's been coming out saying, hey, uh, we need to slap tariffs on China on steel and aluminum, but it's more just general in nature. And his excuse or reasoning behind it is saying that China is stealing our intellectual property, which actually is true. I mean, we've seen that where a lot of Chinese manufacturing is copying software or products or whatever, you know, like knockoff brands and movies and things like that. But anyway, he's using that as a scapegoat, if you will, to then institute some kind of penalty against China. So it's it's like a tit for tat kind of concept is the way it's coming across. But just as a, a point of reference, I found that the the Commission on Theft of American Intellectual Property assessed that the cost of Chinese theft of IP is up to $225 billion a year. Whether or not that number is true, it does say that there is like a, a big amount of money involved in terms of loss and theft. R&D is very costly and time intensive. And if you put the effort into researching and developing something, and then someone comes along and copies that from you with no effort involved, then it disincentivizes you from undertaking that effort in the future. So anyway, that's kind of tangential. It seems like Trump is using these tariffs as a penalty against China for IP theft, 25% tariffs on steel imports from China and 10% tariffs on aluminum imports from China. So, okay, that's the situation. Let's talk more theory. When we talk of tariffs, what comes to mind for you and, and what are your initial thoughts? My understanding of tariffs is you've got two parties voluntarily agreeing on a set price for an item, steel, aluminum. And then a third party comes in and says, great, you guys are making that decision. Now there's going to be additional cost on those items and that money's going to come to me. Yeah. And the derivative impact of that is that the tariff is increasing the cost to the end consumer, whoever is buying the goods. So in effect, we know from economics that through the law of supply and demand, if you increase the price of something, you will essentially decrease the demand for it. So the idea being you're going to reduce the money flowing in the direction of the exporter. Mm -hmm. A tariff on steel from China means the price of steel in America from China will be higher, right. therefore reducing the demand for Chinese steel in America, therefore reducing money going from America to China for the purchase of steel. So that's the idea of where it's coming from. But does that really make any sense? Does it make sense? Sure. Sure, it makes sense. But is that right? What What's your favorite drink? Mountain Dew, man. Mountain Dew. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's great, but 
I've decided, and I, I actually asked a bunch of people, and we took a vote, and we've agreed that the next time you enjoy Mountain Dew, you're free to do so. You're a free man. You're in a free country. But every time you do, you're going to have to pay us a dollar. This is like I'm moving back to Philadelphia because when I was up there, they instituted a soda tax. Yeah. I was laughing at myself in the car when I was thinking of this idea because I thought, it sounds absurd to drill home that this is wrong, but this actually happened in, in the United <laughs> States. Yeah. The soda tax. I mean, what would be your reaction to, to me coming up and telling you that, demanding a dollar for every future Mountain Dew you purchased? Well, obviously there's bitterness involved in a situation. You become resentful at owing something that you didn't owe before. That change doesn't make any sense. If I didn't have to pay it before, why do I have to pay it now kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I, if you derive your opinions on, on policy from principles, you first have to define your principles. I think within our country, we had a group of men who, some coming from a Christian background, some coming from a deist background, came to this idea that we don't belong to the state. We belong to our creator. And because that we belong to our creator, we don't belong to one another. We own our body, we own our property, and we own our destiny. We can make free decisions. If the state, if we owned one another, then we could make decisions like this, where I've decided that Mountain Dew's bad for you, so we're going to take appropriate action for the betterment of your future, your life, your property too, because we think it's better for you for us to take a dollar by force. And all these things are by force because if you don't pay the Mountain Dew tax, I mean, I like to say it as almost gruesomely as possible to really hammer home what, what we're doing when we're saying we're going to enforce a law. If you don't pay me that dollar for drinking a Mountain Dew, we're going to fine you. If you don't pay the fine, we're going to come to your house with authorities with guns and we're going to take you to a cage and lock you up. Like that's appropriate to do for somebody who murders, for somebody <laughs> who rapes. I think as a society, we should do that because people own their lives. People own their, themselves. That's why you can't aggress against people. But this property thing is, is maybe where, where a lot of people go, go away. Do you really own your property? Is it really God has given you the ability to bring value to the economy, which brings money back, and that belongs to you, unless you voluntarily give it to somebody else. If yes, if you really own property, then it doesn't matter what I can do with this dollar. It doesn't matter what we, the people, have decided is in your best interest. That dollar belongs to you, and your decision to consume what you want to consume belongs to you. So on a larger scale, it'd be applied to tariffs, because whatever Trump, whatever the Republicans, whatever the Democrats, whatever the consensus thinks is in the best interest for this country. The two people trading for steel, that's their property, that's their money, and we don't get to have it because we think we can better control the economy with it. So I think the influence comes in when a government is trying to manipulate its citizens' behavior. So if you think about a lot of policies that governments institute is not necessarily on a moral level, for example, a tariff, it is coming from a attempting to manipulate behavior and outcomes. So the government is trying to stop Americans from buying Chinese steel, essentially. Right. That's essentially the manipulation and behavior that's happening. To your point is basically somebody saying, I know what's better for you better than you know what's better for you, and we're going to do it this way kind of thing. Which is fine to think that, right? We're all free to, to think those things. I think we're, where we should be debating this from a morality standpoint of what is moral is this is a cool program. Sounds great. They're doing something wrong to us. Maybe we should seek some sort of revenge. 
But how we do that has moral implications. And I think it's immoral to take people's money to run these programs. Oh, so I forgot to mention that apparently one of the alleged goals of the tariffs is to support the local industry. So supporting American steel production and American aluminum production, which is kind of a straw man argument. It's like having a government project where you employ a bunch of people to have shovels to dig a hole and then have another bunch of people to fill the hole back up. Right. And then you've created a ton of jobs. Yeah. And then make them all use spoons. (laughs) Yeah. For job security. Exactly. But like what value have you created? And as somebody who comes from Pittsburgh, like I get it. I was at a wedding where uh, um, I was the best man and one of the elders of of that wedding, you know, I think it was was the wife's uh, bride's dad. He was in the steel union. He endured that whole period of time during Pittsburgh. But that shouldn't change change our minds. Like it's it's actually the reason we want to be principled in making these decisions and think about morality first. Because when emotions get into it, when we have conflicts of interest, we're going to make the decisions that are in our immediate self-interest, and those are not necessarily the most moral. Yeah. So who who is it exactly that pays pays this tariff? So if the American consumer is paying the tariff, so it's a, a premium that they're paying on the original price to the Chinese. So the American consumer is paying the cost of the steel to the Chinese steel seller, and then they're paying the tariff fee. The American consumer is paying the tariff fee to the U.S. government. Okay. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at it, but if, if you keep it as simple as you can, it is three parties at work here. They were making this trade, money for steel. And now a third party is coming in with the threat of imprisonment and saying, give us a cut. So we need to debate whether or not that's theft. Because in any other circumstance, if it wasn't the government doing this, we would call that theft. I would hope you'd probably call the police if I was demanding a cut, an additional fee for you to drink Mountain Dew. We'd either call that theft or we call that mafia in most most other circumstances. That was what really clicked for me when I thought of that analogy or read it somewhere. Protection money to the mafia sounds a lot like paying tribute to the king, which then sounds like paying tax to the government. (laughs) So they're not really all that different. The mafia did protect you, right? The government does protect you, right? Yeah. If you go down that road, you don't have a moral case against the mafia because... If using a practical what's best in the end, the ends justify the means mentality, then you would have to say that not that a mafia is wrong, but what's the best mafia? Or is this the right time for a mafia? Yeah. Okay. So then on an economic basis, what are the implications, like the positives and negatives of a potential tariff? So I'll, I will answer this question, but here's the right answer. Who cares? If this is an immoral act, who cares how the, how the mob money is being spent? Even if it fee- feeds all the hungry children, it's blood money. And I really don't want to sound like Glenn Beck or an extremist or, or whatever, or a sensationalist, because I'm not, I really don't want to be a sensationalist on the issue. But it is. It is just that thing. And I think the wool's being pulled over our, our eyes because we have the desire to covet. And if we don't repent from coveting, then it's real appetizing when someone says, hey, China's stealing from us. Let's tariff. I was like, excuse me, I'm raising my hand here. Uh, Isn't tariff stealing from the person buying the steel? 
well, technically, it's for our own good. It's like, so what we're doing is we're stealing from ourselves, giving that money to the government because China's stealing from us. Like, if we just took a more more approach to it, even if, if we end up that it hurts our steel industry, well, guess what? We have a more moral society, a righter society. And I think in the end, that's what we should be doing. But to answer your question, I'm going to refer to uh, Dave Smith on part of the problem. He used this analogy, and I'm going to think of it in terms of the wealth of the nations. We all have a certain amount of wealth in each nation. Whoever preserves that wealth and reinvests it properly will prosper more and more. That's, that's how you grow. If you malinvest. Yeah, malinvestment. If you participate in that, you're going to lose wealth over, over time. So he, he had this simple example. Air. We're breathing the air. You're breathing the air listening. And you're paying nothing for it. So if somebody all of a sudden says, we are going to charge a tariff on breathing, and air will now cost money, and we'll use that money to do jobs programs, are we a richer or are we a poorer nation? It's really the difference between value-added jobs and jobs just for the sake of jobs. The steel industry, if it can't compete with China, is no longer an industry to be in. It is more wealth-producing as a nation to take cheap goods from other people, raw goods like steel and aluminum, and make finished goods here. Those are indicators telling you where you need to be as an economy, where the growth is. If you can't compete anymore, then you have not competed, and the free market will cleanse you from existing, which is awful if you narrow in on the exact families that are suffering from it. And I get that. That's why you can't make these decisions emotionally and case by case. You have to make them from a principle, principle standpoint. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's very difficult because of that component, the personal stories and that kind of stuff. But I go back to the example of times in the past where technology has moved the economy in a specific direction where there's a breakthrough, electricity or assembly line or things like that. And yes, that puts certain people out of work for certain jobs, but then it creates new jobs in new directions. So there's always growth and opportunity that comes out of those things. It's just a shift in a different direction that you have to adjust for. It's funny that you mentioned the air example. That's literally the same example that Tom used last night. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that complicates things for us when we're trying to think about the world stage and geopolitical issues or economic policies on a, on a national level is that we think of it too big and allow too many variables to cloud our judgment or analysis of a subject. But if you really start to hone or refine a subject down to a very small level, so for example, if we thought of the economy as like an island, and that's the entire economy, would we want one villager who's really good at digging in the dirt and finding steel pieces to do that? Or would we want the person who's not that great at digging in the dirt, but really good at making baskets to then we can't have only one person digging in the dirt and getting steel pieces and the other person making baskets. We need both of you to be doing both. What's going to be a better result? How are you going to have more steel and more baskets? If you have the person who's good at finding the steel and the person that's making baskets, making the baskets, and then they trade, right? Right. Then if you just extrapolate that back to the national level, if China is really good at producing steel at a cheap cost, 
and the U.S. is really good at producing software or whatever, then why try to force the issue of forcing America to be productive at producing steel when they can't do it as efficiently as China or vice versa or whatever? You know what I mean? Right. So, so you're, you're forcing or tr really trying to promote something that isn't naturally occurring. And in the end, you're creating a net negative that otherwise you could synergize together and we'll take the cheaper cost steel from China and then we'll be able to have more money to put into the software or whatever. Right. So I think thinking of things, economics examples on the island scale can really help you start to think about how you might implement or what makes sense on a practical level. So you don't even care to think of even the negatives of it when you find it just like morally reprehensible in the first place. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's not at the exact same level, but it's it's in parallel to, I'm sure when they were thinking of abolishing slavery, there were people who were talking about the economics of it. That's pretty nauseating to think about looking back, to think that anybody would talk about slavery from any other standpoint besides, this is wrong. We need to stop this. So much like that was most rightly handled as an abolition movement. This has got to end because it's wrong. That's how we should look at things, because if something's wrong, we, we should end it. And if, if something's wrong, but we're justifying it to help ourselves economically, that in itself is evil. And as you, yeah, as you said, morally reprehensible. Are you organizing the next Tea Party? No. Well, although it sounds like they might have made a lot of money organizing that Tea Party. What, what happened to the Tea Party? I'm talking about the old Tea oh, Party, not the new Tea Party. The, throwing steel off the boat? No, throwing tea off the boat. That's what the tea party was. Oh, yeah. No, the new one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have been working out a little bit. Maybe I can flip some, some steel. No. Yeah, I'm I'm not. I don't think we're here as a country. I mean, that's why Donald Trump was, was the first radical outsider that got elected and not Ron Paul. I mean, he was clear. He was clear about these things. I think we made decisions as, as a country. We are willing to... We're giving money to the mafia. I mean, we, we've we've chosen initial security over over liberty we've done all these things and so i get why why his message resonates with people because they're promised uh, security that's why I mean, he won this election because he i remember when when the election was going down i told somebody i said i think trump's going to get pennsylvania that's what they're predicting and that person looked at me like i was nuts they said no and they walked away <laughs> like they completely dismissed anything else I had to say because that was so absurd. But he won all, all these uh, for all these uh, Rust Belt states. So from a strategic standpoint, when the ends justify the means, Trump's got to do this. He's got to appeal to that base that got him there to maybe keep him there if he wants to stay. So thinking of, for example, the car industry, I think time has demonstrated that the American auto industry is strictly inferior to Japanese. Oh. So why are we trying to force American car production if we're not good at making cars? We're pouring resources into making that work when we could just be buying them cheaper from Japan and pouring that money into something else that we are good at. To me, it's another example of trying to force something and in the end having a net negative. Yeah. Okay, so the action that you would like to see going forward would be for any and all tariffs to be abolished and completely forgotten about. Yes, not only that, but it needs to come from people in, in the country re-examining property. 
what does that mean? Do people really own their money? Is it really theirs? Because if so, then we need to analyze what exactly is government spending and them taking money. And and from just a libertarian jargon standpoint, the, the question is phrased as, is taxation theft? I think people just need to think through that one. I don't look down at anybody who hasn't ever thought of that. And if you just heard that for the first time and you think that's absurd, is radical wrong? If something's radically different from your way of thinking, does that automatically equal it being wrong? That is the way politics works, is they always try to paint somebody as being absurdly different. So your brain concludes that they're wrong. One thing that I think is an issue is that libertarians are so principled that they're never willing to compromise. So the world, as a libertarian sees it, is so far different than the state of the world that exists in reality. And to get from what it is to what it ought be is a big jump. So how do you get there? How do you make the stepping stones without some forms of compromise? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, it is, it is fair. A lot of libertarians I know, they don't compromise. I'm always nauseated at the idea of people wanting politicians who want to reach across the aisle. Because I think, what do you believe in? You know, we put up this dog and pony show that it's them versus us and they're evil, but now you want to work with them? Like, what's going on? Is this a game show? Is this, is this Big Brother? What, what are we doing here? And I think that 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 is the case. And the sad answer to your question is there are plenty of stepping stones. I mean, there, there's an order to how to make moral our government through these principles. One way works better than the other. Talking about the order of immigration, entitlements, taxes, all these things. There's a proper order to these things. But the heart of it is not really that we've got people thinking about these things and they're on board with the world getting more moral and more right so that when we debate, we're, we're saying, what's a good compromise so that we're pursuing what's right that doesn't make us go too crazy? They're calling us kooks and saying, no, no, there's plenty of blood money out there and we want it. That's the conversation that's going on. So it's, it's almost impossible for us to compromise with that. Well, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't think you should compromise on a moral level. The point that I'm making is, for example, like if taxes are wrong and we shouldn't be doing them, and currently taxes are deeply ingrained in the way the society works, I would think you have to make stepping stones of eliminating this tax or that tax. I just don't think it's practical like you, that you could get society to move in such a way that just say like, okay, never mind. We won't take your money from you. Do you think that there's any world where you could wake up and that could be the case? Well, no, I don't think so. I, and, and I think it's because I talk to the American constituents on a day-by-day basis, and, and most people I meet are content with this. They want a leader who's willing to take other people's money to do what in their mind is right, but failed to reconcile that with the initial right or wrong of where that where that money came from and no because ron paul wasn't a radical libertarian you know you, you can see his voting record he's existed within our government for years and years and years and he spoke openly about what had to happen first based on the situation like for example he said he said those that our former governments have promised medicare and and social security we in a sense owe them that money so you have to taper these things down based on what was promised in the past, even if we disagree with it. But the direction is clear, that we need to relook at everything we're doing and think about, think about it from a different angle. 
But we rejected Ron Paul. Fox News called him a kook. The public got on board with that, and, uh, and we dismissed him. So part of that's probably the propaganda campaign of the media, which I can't believe Trump defeated that. That was the strongest I've ever seen it. But the pessimistic part of me says it's because people reject this notion. They want a strong arm in command because that money might come to them at some point. I'm hearing a cynical tone in your outlook for the future. Yeah. But, yeah, we were joking that Christians should just make their own brand of movie where someone someone runs in and says, oh, no, the government has turned into a giant mafia. And someone says, well, it's okay because we all deserved hell by our actions and Jesus died for everybody's sins. So we can be reconciled to our creator. <laughs> and then the person out of breath who just saw the madness goes, oh, relatively speaking, that's... That's pretty great. It's like, yeah. Well, let's now let's go do our best in this whatever problem has been <laughs> that's been proposed to us. Now, I mean, I mean, you, you got to. It's understandable through Christian worldview, because we were warned that our sinful nature would be covetous. We want to covet, and that's I think what's what's being ignored. And uh, as a Christian, I got to trust that whatever God's doing with this country, with any country, is in some some way good. And I don't pretend I do. I'm challenged by the book of Job. It's like, you make these decisions that look because you trust what he's doing, especially in comparison, as an economist says, compared to what? Compared to myself. Like, I don't know how I'd run this world. Probably wouldn't be good. Yeah. We don't definitely don't have the whole perspective of how everything works together. We only have our little tiny piece of the pie. Yeah. I got a question. Do you think the politicians get this at a deep level? Do you think that maybe they came in, like that quote is, if you don't go into college as a, as a liberal, you have no heart, right? Like if they didn't, they started their political career in college, they thought, yeah, we really want to take care of people. That's the country we want to be. We don't want to withhold help. And then they got into politics and they were just focused on their next project and getting their next project done and making the next speech. And then do you think they ever get to a point where they realize, where's this money coming from? What is this? This is not charity. If you don't give to charity, that's the end of it. But Peter Schiff, his dad died in prison because he didn't pay his, his income tax. Do you think the politicians get that at some point and have, have the, like a, a mid-political career crisis? If your original question was just like, do you think most politicians are competent? I would actually answer yes. Or that they get this principle. Are they wrestling through the question of whether or not taxation is theft? No, I don't think people view it that way. That it's just like a natural state of the world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that there's nothing wrong with it. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think that's why the abolition movement is what's needed. Because I, I don't think less of Thomas Jefferson because he, maybe Thomas Jefferson a little bit because he wrote it in his documents that everybody's free and equal and then he had slaves. Like it should have been in his face. But I don't think we should condemn us for acting in the status quo. Because you and I are probably doing things, we're definitely doing things that are wrong in our day-to-day -day life, but they're culturally appropriate, so we just continue on. Well, it's like, when do you have free will and when are you giving up free will? And what is an agreement? If you agree to work for the shipping company for seven years after they give you a ride from Europe over to America because you can't afford it, is that a reasonable deal that you've consented to? Or is that unethical indentured servitude? Or even forms of slavery where people would maybe like sell themselves into slavery? Yeah. Is that a consensual deal or or is that against people's rights? Yes to the second one. <laughs> Controversial comment. <laughs> yeah. And, and 
I guess, let me separate condemn and judge, because I think we misuse judges. We shouldn't condemn people and saying that they're worthless, they're beyond hope, beyond recovery, if they do things that are wrong. But we should judge properly. We should divide right and wrong within our, our lives, within our decisions, within our cultural norms, to figure out which we should steer into and which we should steer away from. So your main point is that we should be abolishing all tariffs, and in fact, even a step further than tariffs, all taxes, and that you're going to start the uh, abolition movement to start the next Tea Party throwing steel off the boats when they come into port. Yeah, sounds <laughs> sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for your input. And thanks so much, Eric, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. All right. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>